Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bizzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Johanna Pink, Professor of Islamic Studies at the University of Freiburg, Germany, about her co-edited volume with Andreas Gorka, Tafsir and Islamic Intellectual History, Exploring the Boundaries of a Genre, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. What does it mean to interpret the Qur'an? What kinds of literary genres have produced and continue to produce such inquiry? Is tafsir only a line-by-line commentary, or could it be something broader, blended with genres of law, storytelling, translation? Whose authority counts and why? Tafsir and Islamic intellectual history aims to address these questions and more in its ambitious agenda. Johanna Pink and Andreas Gorka have provided a great service to the field of Quranic studies by compiling this fine volume, penned by 15 established as well as rising scholars in the field. The book is conveniently organized according to five sections which explore the challenges of Quranic exegesis in modern and pre-modern contexts. The authors also explore a number of languages and geographical regions which showcases the diverse expressions of exegesis that Muslims have produced over the centuries. Pink's own chapter in the volume, for example, analyzes the exegetical works of Yemeni scholar Muhammad al-Shawkani and provocatively argues that labels, such as modern or Salafi, have their uses, but can nonetheless introduce other problematics, and readers should be careful before assuming an easy fit into any of these categories. In addition to appealing to Quranic studies scholars of many stripes, this edited volume also presents itself as a reference work, given its broad scope, meticulous notes, and extensive bibliography, and should therefore appeal to diverse readers accordingly. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Johanna Pink. Good morning, Johanna. Thanks for joining us today on New Books in Islamic Studies. Good morning, Elliot. So today we're going to do something a little bit unusual, which is we're going to talk about an edited volume that you co-edited and incorporate a discussion of a forthcoming monograph that you have. So I'm excited about that. And the way we like to start our interviews in New Books in Islamic Studies is to invite authors to first tell us a little bit about themselves and how they became interested in Islamic studies. So could you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm now a tenured professor in Islamic studies at a German university, uh, the University of Freiburg. Um, I've been here for five years um, and I, I started to, um, to do Islamic studies or to, to study it in 1992. Um, and at the time it was not a very political subject. It was a very exotic one. So I was mainly interested in um, religion and also in studying Arabic, which I was fascinated by. So um, I, I didn't actually know a lot about Islam or about the Middle East or anything of that kind. I was just interested. Um, and I've, I think I've maintained my fascination with learning languages um, so I'm working with a number of languages in my research besides Arabic. Um, and I've also maintained my, my fascination with um, religion and particularly Islam and various forms of expression of Islam, which is um, um, 
In Germany, Islamic studies is a very broad field that encompasses um, everything that would be um, Middle Eastern studies and Middle Eastern history in the U.S. So you do not necessarily have to be particularly interested in religion to do it, but that was my original motivation, and I think I maintained that kind of motivation, which is what uh, eventually also led me to focus on Quranic exegesis and Quran translations. Could, could you say a little bit about how you became interested in the Qur'an, especially since one of your, your first projects was related to religious diversity in Egypt, which doesn't have yeah. a, an ostensible connection to Qur'anic studies, but could you help us understand the trajectory a little bit? Yeah, um, I guess it started when I studied with uh, Stefan Wild in Bonn, who um, at the time became very interested in the Qur'an, and he also edited a book, The Qur'an as Text, and uh, he was friends with Nasser Hamid Abu Zaid and invited him to a class we had on um, on the Quran. And uh, I learned a lot of fascinating things in this class. I heard for the first time about people such as Farid Esak and uh, Mahmoud Muhammad Taha. And um, then um, when I, um, you are right that when I did my PhD, I focused on on religious minorities um, and Muslim positions on um, religions or religious communities that are not accepted by Islam and also by most Middle Eastern states. So this was entirely unrelated. Um, but then um, my interest in the Quran returned first uh, through teaching. I, I taught a number of classes on the Quran and Quranic exegesis, uh, which was when I realized that the um, the state of research on, on modern and contemporary Quranic exegesis was very shallow in, in my um, from my perspective, and mostly focusing on a specific set of ideas and, and um, neglecting a lot of other things that were going on. Um, and then I was also, um, for career reasons, I was looking for a second big field after the topic of my PhD to work in, because uh, this is what you need to do in Germany to get a tenured position, quite simply. So... Um, since I also had a, um, a young family at the time and couldn't do extensive fieldwork in the Middle East, um, doing research on Quranic commentaries seemed like a perfect solution because it allowed me to integrate my interest in the Quran and religious discourses in different languages and to do this mostly at my desk. So um, this is how I started. And since then, of course, I've also done fieldwork and all kinds of things. Uh -huh. but, um, yeah, and no, i I look forward to asking you more about your fieldwork in, in a little bit. Before we start talking about the edited volume, could you tell us how you became involved with this particular project and your editor, Andreas Gorka? Yeah, um, Andreas and me, we were both um, based in Berlin at the time. Um, and I was starting to be interested to do projects in um, Tafsir because I was doing research on, on um, contemporary Quranic exegesis myself at the time, and I was um, I was just starting in this field, so I wanted to broaden my uh, my knowledge and my focus. And Andreas is a specialist in early Islamic history and intellectual history, so this seemed like an ideal combination because he had all the knowledge and contacts that I did not have and vice versa. So um, we decided to, to organize a conference on Tafsir and to apply for funding, which was successful. Um, and we had this conference in 2010, 
And after that, it was a very long process until the book was finally published in 2014. And it also, um, yeah, it evolved from a kind of conference volume to a very different um, ed co-edited volume that contains a number of papers that weren't presented at the conference, whereas some of the papers that were presented at the conference are not present in the book for various reasons. So, um, yeah, it was a long process during which we also... Um, very much developed and focused our ideas. And it's obviously a, a very, a very rich text and is answering this issue of what is Tefsir and what is the genre. And so could you, so jumping into the, the text, even starting with the title, could you, what, what is Tefsir? Can you, in your own, own words, tell, yeah. tell the listeners what this word means? Yeah, there's a certain tension in this word because on the one hand, it is often used quite in a very broad sense to denote everything that has to do with um, the interpretation of the Quran. Um, and on the other hand, in a narrow sense, it is a specific genre of scholarship, of Islamic scholarship, um, the Quranic commentary, which um, again has various subgenres, but they all follow specific rules, for example, with respect to the sources they use, to the methods they use, uh, to the general structure and so on. So there's always this tension between tafsir in the narrow sense and tafsir in the broader sense. Um, and for us, um, the question was, what? where are the boundaries? So where's the point at which you wouldn't speak of tafsir any longer and for what reason? Um, how is it related to other genres that... Um, a lot of them actually use the same sources um, and some of the same methods. And obviously the Quran is important for practically all genres of Islamic scholarship. So um, how, how are they related to tafsir um, and what kinds of tafsir are there? These were the questions that we wanted to answer. So could you give us an example of something that might regularly, straightforwardly fit under the category of tafsir and then something that pushes the boundaries a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, the most common sense application of the word tafsir refers to, to mainstream, mostly Sunni Quranic commentaries, although there are also a few Shi'i works that fit the category, um, which is a, a straightforward Quranic commentary that comments on the entire text of the Quran in its canonical order, uh, first by first or even segment by segment. Um, and discusses all the exegetical problems related to it, referring to previous exegetical authorities um, and often also quoting multiple opinions on, on one and the same problem. So this is the classical format. Um, and um, the question of boundaries was often negotiated in, um, in relation to esoteric um, approaches um, and there has been a very recent volume on esoteric approaches to the Quran, which uh, I was very, um, which, which I'm very excited about, um, because this is really a very interesting field. So this was one issue which was always contested, also for political reasons. It had a lot to do with the um, ascent of the Fatimid Caliphate and the desire of a lot of Sunnis to um, oppose it by pointing to their um, allegedly, yeah, heretical or. Uh, unacceptable way they, to interp of interpreting the Quran. Um, then there was there were always um, attempts to experiment. Like we have um, Quranic commentaries 
um, that, for example, that don't use um, diacritical signs. So they, they don't only use letters that don't have dots um, below, above or whatever, which is very weird. And um, we don't exactly know why, know why somebody did something like that. But uh, the point is that it was very hard for such works to be um, to be accepted into the mainstream tradition of Tafsir because they were just so different from what Tafsir was doing. And then um, in recent years, there's also um, been an increasing focus on um, a Quranic exegesis that has been carried out in other genres, uh, such as polemical works, for example, or um, narrative works of prophetic history, um, which um, um, some of them are profoundly exegetical, or even uh, they they even offer hermeneutical theories, but they also had a very hard time to make the transition into actual works of tafsir in the narrow sense. And so, so given the, I mean, as, as you're clearly articulating, this is a, a contested category that could be fluid. And so, given that, how did you how did you negotiate the scope of the volume and? the kinds of contributors you wanted and the kinds of questions you wanted to ask? What, like, what was the process like of putting the edited volume together logistically? Yeah, it was a very long process, as I said. And um, in the beginning, um, we had this conference, and that was a combination of um, inviting participants. Um, so we invited specific persons and we wanted it to be a mix of um, senior scholars, but also emerging scholars. So we had participants such as Andrew Rippin um, and Claude Gilliot, but also um, people who were working on their PhD thesis. And then we also had to call for papers because we wanted to have a chance to include um, interesting young scholars whom we hadn't heard about yet, which always happens. Um, so, um, in the beginning, we were thematically quite open because we felt that there was at the time so little um, research on on the field of tafsir that anything which was kind of um, exploring the boundaries of this genre and its relation to other genres and its um, internal structure would would be helpful for further scholarship. Um, and in the process of editing this volume, um, and especially when we decided to um, to have it published by Oxford University Press in collaboration with the Institute for Ismaili Studies, uh, who were very much involved in the editorial process. Um, we focused it more and more on a specific set of questions, and um, we discussed them with the authors, and uh, so the whole thing took shape over a period of at least two or three years. Um, and also, unfortunately, I have to say um, a few contributions that um, we would have liked to retain dropped out for various reasons, um, which um, weakened some areas that we would have liked to include, especially the question of Shi and of um, mystical tafsir, so the whole esotericism issue, which is why I'm so happy that there's no volume specifically on that. Uh-huh. And in, in the introduction, and you've mentioned it as well, but you specifically note that there's no comprehensive history of tafsir that has yet to be written and that yeah. it's been an understudied area within Islamic studies. Could you say a little bit about that, about what your sense is of why that's the case, especially since, as you know, like the Quran is, is at the center of Muslim discourses? 
Yeah, well, first of all, I think this perception that the Quran is at the center of Muslim discourses is actually a pretty recent phenomenon. Um, because, um, yeah, it has taken center stage um, as opposed to, to fields like Kalam or Sul al-Fiqh in recent decades for a lot of reasons um, that I've gone into in my more recent project. But um, anyway, this um, I mean, the Quran is, of course, central and has always been central to a certain extent um, for, for all fields of scholarship. Um, the interesting thing is that in Islamic studies until at least the 1990s, there was this near exclusive interest in what the Quran actually says. So um, there were studies on the Quran um, from a literary or historical perspective, um, but there was little interest in tafsir because it was felt that um, because most works of tafsir have been written so much later than the Quran and are so obviously um, influenced by um, by the theological and um, juridical and philological, etc., etc., debates that took place in the, at the, the, their author's time, it was felt that they could um, offer us very little um, concerning a proper understanding of the Quran. Um, and there was little interest in reading Quranic commentaries as works in their own right that have a, um, a specific set of methods, a specific history, and that can tell us something beyond the actual meaning of the Quran. Um, this also, I think, had to do with a, um, a very Western perspective on, on issues or on concepts such as authenticity, originality, uh, innovation. So, um, there was a certain interest in the formative period of Tafsir, but um, the classical period, which starts about um, in the 10th century CE, was usually considered as repetitive, um, uncreative, unoriginal, or even sclerotic, um, because there was so much, um, well, they were all taking part in the same discourses, and there was a lot of repetition. Um, but there were also, of course, reasons for that, and um, there were still a lot of works that had their own merits um, and, and their own reasons for being, for example, part of uh, madrasa curricula. Uh, but this was something that a lot of scholars were not interested in. Something that's very indicative of that trend is um, the near complete lack of interest in the, um, in the hashia or the gloss on Quranic commentaries, which was a central part of um, the way in which exegesis was performed until the 19th century. Um, but we know hardly anything about it because I think the only scholar who has actually paid attention to it in the modern period is Walid Saleh. Um, but most other scholars feel that um, it doesn't really merit a lot of attention because it's not an original work. And mm -hmm. so this whole, this whole concept of um, a work having to be an original work, whatever that means, um, is very problematic. Um, if you look at the history of an, a genre of scholarship. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the result of all this was that there was very little interest in, in Tafsir in itself. Um, tafsir works were mainly consulted to, to get at the meaning of um, some expressions in the Quran, but not really studied. This has changed, fortunately, in the past 25 years, I think. Uh -huh. And this this issue of originality versus n not novelty, you you get at several of your authors get at this by looking at particular exegetes and seeing what they contribute and how they 
are, are different from other people. And so in your own chapter, um, entitled Where Does Modernity Begin? Muhammad al-Shawkani and the Tradition of Tafsir, you look at a particular Yemeni scholar and could you could you tell us about about who this is? Who's Muhammad al-Shawkani and why did you choose to write a chapter about him? Yeah, Shawkani was uh, the preeminent Yemeni scholar of his time. He was um, he lived from 1760 to 1835 um, in Sana'a. Um, he was born a Zaidi, which is a branch of Shia Islam that was also um, the ruling uh, denomination, if you, if you want to put it that way, in Yemen at the time. But uh, Shawkani um, more or less turned to a form of Sunnism. Um, and um, specifically a form of Sunnism that rejected the legal schools. So he didn't want to be part of any specific madhab, but he um, he relied on the Sunni Hadith collections, for example. So he more or less renounced uh, the Zaidi tradition um, and became part of some kind of scripturalist, um, or you could also call it fundamentalist Sunni tradition, which was... Um, quite pervasive at the time in various regions of the Muslim world. Um, and Shaukani wrote a lot of things. There's also, um, by the time I wrote my, my article, there was already um, a very interesting monograph on Shaukani by Bernard Haeckel. The interesting thing, um, and that's quite symptomatic, is um, that none of the works um, I found about Shaukani talked about his tafsir. Um, they talk about his legal works, fatwas, and whatever, um, but uh, there was hardly anything about his tafsir other than mention of the fact that it exists. So obviously a lot of scholars had looked at it and didn't really know what to do with it. Right. Um, so yeah, this, is, this was a main reason for me to, to approach him, and the other reason was chronological, because um, he's, he wrote at a time at the beginning of the 19th century that is um, usually, at least with respect to Yemen, um, seen as belonging to the pre-modern period. Um, so he is usually considered a traditional or classical or whatever exegete. And I was wondering whether this is actually true. So mm-hmm. this was my main interest for looking at him. Right. And and you know as well you you talk about how in the encyclopedia of the Quran the these these categories are broken down into modern and pre-modern which you have some reservations about as well. So what how does how does Shalkani push push the boundaries of modern and pre-modern in terms of where you would want to classify him as a, an exegete? Well, first of all, I think it does make sense to talk of a modern period if you mean by it the period that starts um, or that manifests some kind of reaction to Western influence. So um, at the end of the 19th century, you have Quranic commentaries that try to explain how rational Islam is, uh, that try to give rational explanations for miracles in the Quran, um, that are skeptical of polygamy and slavery and other institutions that are seen critical by Western observers. Um, You have a lot of apologetic content and so on. All of this is completely absent from Shaukani's commentary. Um, He doesn't have any issues with um, things like the evil eye, for example. This is just a 
this is just out of the question for him. It exists. So he writes about it. Um, he doesn't have any, um, he, he doesn't see any necessity to defend the institution of slavery or anything of that kind. So in that sense it's clearly a pre-modern work but um, at the same time I felt that um, there are actually different strands of pre-modern tafsir um, that are um, quite different in their hermeneutical outlook um, and there's one strand which um, you could call scripturalist or fundamentalist uh, which Shaukani is representative of um, and this trend becomes becomes very prominent in the in the 19th century um, and is directly appropriated and adopted by a lot of um, modernist exegetes such as Rashid Rida or Jamal al-Din al-Qasimi. So um, this idea of a clear rupture between the early 19th century and the late 19th century um, somehow um, is called into question by, by my results, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and you also you throw in some other terms that could be problematized as well, such as fundamentalist or scripturalist. And you have this this nice quote that I'd like to invite your commentary on from your chapter. So you're talking about what it would mean to call someone like a Shaukani Salafi. And so you mentioned that he does not actually hold particular respect for the interpretations offered by the Salaf, namely the companions and the Tabi'un and does not consider them more valuable than those of later scholars, and certainly not more authoritative than his own. So could you say a little bit about what we mean in general when we talk about Salafi or Salafi exegesis? And then could you say how Ashokani lines up with this area? Yeah, um, the term Salafi is very problematic because it's um, yeah it's changed meaning and over time, and it's also... Um, often used for for very different phenomena. So today it's mostly associated with people who more or less follow the methodology of Ibn Taymiyyah. And for Ibn Taymiyyah, actually, he wrote a, um, um, an introduction to uh, the methods of Quranic exegesis. And for him, actually, the Salah of the first generations of Islam held a very high degree of authority. So they came right after the Prophet. And if there was any authentic tradition about something the Salaf said about the Quran, it had to be followed, at least in theory. Um, Shaukani is often also labeled a Salafi today, although certainly Shaukani didn't use that label for himself. Um, because he has some of the same ideas, namely that um, you should follow um, scriptural proof rather than um, the opinions of later legal scholars or exegetical authorities and so on. So if you have some clear evidence from the Quran or the Sunnah, then you should follow it in its more or less literal sense. He actually has a quite sophisticated idea of what that literal sense could be, but He's definitely against, um, I don't know, allegor- allegorical interpretations and things like these. Um, so, yeah, in this sense, he's, um, he's very close to the methodology of many people who are labeled Salafis. But at the same time, as the quote you, you just um, cited says or makes clear, um, he, he doesn't actually put much store in the, the opinion of the in the opinions of the Salaf and he doesn't quote Ibn Taymiyyah anywhere. So I think he was much more influenced by Ibn Hazm, um, who also became very popular um, in the late nineteenth and twentieth century. So there's a clear genealogy of ideas that also um, 
is very influential in in modern times and um um yeah what was was a Shaukani reading Ibn Taymiyyah? Was there a reason he didn't like to incorporate him? I'm I'm not sure, um, but um, he does quote Ibn Kathir, so um, uh-huh. he cer- he certainly knew. I mean, Ibn Kathir was a disciple of Ibn Taymiyyah, and Shaukani certainly knew Ibn Taymiyyah. I don't know if he knew or had access to the the Muqaddimah fi Usulat Tafsir. But uh, Ibn Kathir quotes much of this work by Ibn Taymiyyah in his own Quranic commentary. So Shaukani must have had some access to it, but he, he doesn't quote it at all. And um, I mean, Shaukani was very, very interested in bolstering his own authority. So, of course, um, he wanted to make this argument that um, just a, a scholar is not more valuable or more, or more authoritative just because he lived earlier than somebody else, because he himself lived relatively late in um yeah in in the context of islamic history um but um so i i would hesitate to call him a salafi but he has certainly been um been considered a salafi by many also in saudi arabia um he is considered one of the really acceptable exegetes um but i would definitely call him a scripturalist or fundamentalist in the sense that he doesn't um doesn't yeah um that he wants to go back to the sources um at the expense of later scholarly traditions mm-hmm. yeah I, I think it's it's interesting the way you you characterize him as someone who wouldn't see the salaf as having uh positions that are necessarily more authoritative than than his own um it's a, it's, a, it's a provocative, I think, thought, thought experiment on its own to think about what it means to be Salafi or be called Salafi, and then adding in not considering the Salaf authoritative. I think it does, it does a good job of jungling the category. Yeah. And so, so you've talked a little bit about what you've what you discovered in writing your own chapter about Ashokani. as as a co-editor of the volume. What what kinds of surprises or striking things did you learn or encounter from going through the material that you edited from your other contributors? Were there, were there some things or gems of historical insight that really stuck out to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we were quite happy with most of uh, most, I mean, with all of the chapters that eventually made it into the book, obviously. Um, and of course, um, yeah, we are, we we were always looking for contributions that kind of called into question um, common categories or perceptions or concepts. Um, um, for me personally, um, the the chapter written by my co-editor Andreas Gerke was was very important, um, and I keep quoting it also because. Um, he paid particularly particular attention to media transformation, and I think this is a um, a structural condition of um, Quranic exegesis in the modern period that is often overlooked. So the, the media that exegesis takes place in has a direct effect on, um, on the one hand, the people who produce exegesis, and on the other hand, the audiences they can reach. Um, and so he goes into this, um, uh, some of the, the, in, yeah, the results of this process, especially with respect to the Internet, 
Um, and we also, it was very important to, uh, to us to have pieces that point to the importance of language and of regional differences. Um, so I think the chapter, the last chapter in the volume by Andrew Rippon about the contemporary translation of classical works of Tafsir, um, he was the first person ever to, to even write about this topic. Um, because usually, um, I mean, even Quran translations are not studied that often because uh, most people feel that, I mean, you could as well look at the Quran itself rather than a translation. Uh, and that's even more the case with works of Tafsir. You would look at the original Ibn Kathir and not at some possibly not even very academic English translation. But of course, um, translations are produced for all kinds of reasons and um, can be interesting to look at for these reasons, for example, um, with respect to the way in which they make pre-modern works of Tafsir accessible to their projected audiences and what they leave out, how they translate um, technical terms and so, and so on. Um, yeah, so um, this was one aspect and also um, we also, of course, wanted to, um, to address the whole issue of the formative period um, which has received more attention and scholarship so far. But, um, yeah, where there's also a lot of, um, st there are a lot of st open questions still, in, um, especially with respect to the interrelation between tafsir and other genres, um, such as hadith. Um, we were very much surprised by the, or um, thrilled by the, um, results of Roberto Tortoli's work on um, um, the exegetical hadith that are contained in Malik ibn Anas's um, Wata, which is a very important work of hadith. And it contains a number of exegetical hadith that, um, I mean, if you look at them, you would think that any Quranic commentary should quote them because mm -hmm. they really say about how to understand the Quran, but the Quranic commentaries just don't. So, um, this is indicative of the fact that at a fairly early time there was a um, there was already a development where there was a specific corpus of hadith um, that were being that were considered um, part of the exegetical tradition and others were not. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I think that this will be a good um, switching point talking about tra translation and what kind of sources certain types of scholars like to use and other others don't as we transition into your, 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 your current project. Um, one, one last thing I'd like to ask you about the edited volume before we, we move on to the next segment is a lot of, a lot of educators listen to these podcasts and I, I like to ask the people I interview about teaching. And so have you, have you had a chance to use this volume in your own teaching and do you have advice for teachers listening to this podcast, uh, how they might incorporate the volume into their courses? Well, to be honest, teaching was not the, the main thing we had in mind. I mean, um, I think you can use this in teaching as you can use most um, edited volumes. That is, you can use individual chapters if you teach a class that um, they could be relevant to. Uh, but I think it, yeah, the, the volume is probably too broad in scope and um, some of the chapters are too specialized to make it really the um, the kind of thing you would use for teaching in its entirety, uh, which is actually a big difference to my current project. 
um, where I had teaching needs very much in mind when I devised it. Uh-huh. Okay, let's so let's let, let's jump into that then. So you have a you have a monograph forthcoming, which is Muslim Quranic interpretation today, media genealogies and interpretive communities, mm-hmm. and. So when when are you expecting that to come out? Um, the beginning of 2018, according to the publisher. Uh huh. So so that should be out before too long. And there's so why don't we start off? What are the connections between this current project and the edited volume? Well, the edited volume was just one piece of um, yeah of my an in, in, in vo- yeah, an emerging and evolving interest in Tafsir. Um, and um, as, as you mentioned before, um, there's no comprehensive history of Tafsir yet. And um, I didn't feel qualified to write such a history either, but uh, I did feel qualified to write a more con- comprehensive overview of um, contemporary trends in Quranic interpretation. Um, so this is really what I wanted to do. Um, so this is, yeah, in contrast to this edited volume, it's it's not a collection of, um, yeah, of papers on individual questions and periods and authors and so on. But it's uh, it's trying to give readers a broader picture of what is actually happening today. And when I say contemporary, I really mean today, like not like uh, the period since 1900 or something, but really uh-huh. the past 15 years or so. Well, I think, I mean, I think that's really exciting, A, just because it's an interesting topic, but B, I think the the, the challenge that it takes, because I think in, in a way it's easier to study things that happened a while ago, even as you say, right, like you can, um, you don't need to do field work if you can read stuff in libraries. And so in, yeah. in, in any case, I, I find it, it's impressive that you're you're tackling the the very modern question, because I think in a way that brings more more difficulty, which is ad- admirable. So it, it's a good thing in my mind, and I think many, many readers. So, okay, so you've addressed what you mean by today. What, you look at different regions and languages in your study. Am I, am I yeah. right? Can you, can you tell us about the, the regions and languages that you explore? Yeah, I mean, first of all, what I'm trying to do in this book, in the first part, I try to look at structural conditions that inform uh, interpretive efforts by Muslims. So one of these structural conditions, for example, is the, the modern nation state, um, which uh, is very influential in many ways, for example, by shaping educational systems, also by establishing official languages um, and scripts and so on. So this is one factor um, because, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm by necessity, I, I read quite a number of languages, by, but I'm still limited. There are certain languages, uh, there are a lot of languages that I don't read and therefore regions I can't go into. But I, I think I can still take the, the languages I read as examples um, and derive structural observations from them. This is what I'm really trying to do. So I have this first part, which um, tries to give a broader picture of the structural conditions, themes, important trends, and genealogies behind the Quran interpretation that is happening today. And in the second part, I try to give concrete samples. So I I use text or I translate text and comment on them, Um, for example, to to give an idea of um, how media informs um, Quranic interpretation or what role um, various... um, 
kinds of Islam play um, and, and things like these. Um, and I use works in Arabic, Indonesian, Turkish, Turkish, English, German, and a very little bit of French and Persian for that. And, okay, so let's let's talk about the Indonesian context for for a couple of reasons. One, we happen to have a fortuitous history of an encounter in, in Indonesia at a Quran conference where I got to learn a little bit about your research, and also. I mean, I think it's North America, my sense is that Islamic study scholars take for granted that we have, you know, Indonesia, it's the most populous Muslim majority country in the world, yet still people don't pay that much attention to it. And so what what's your experience been like looking at this incredibly important issue of Quranic exegesis in Indonesia that a lot of scholars don't necessarily pay attention to? Yeah, um, I mean, I personally find it absolutely fascinating um, because, I mean, Indonesia is just, it's a huge country. There are loads of Muslims. It's got um, very high quality and interesting educational institutions. It's also very diverse. Um, then one factor that is very important, it has a very high degree of freedom of opinion when compared to a lot of other Muslim nation state contexts. Um, so really a lot of different actors freely express their opinions on how the Quran should be read. Um, it has a very, um, a nation state that very much, uh, I mean, a government that very much engages in religious discourses, but at the same time, it's a, it's a very diverse country with lots of languages and communities. And I'm actually at the moment trying to learn Japanese, um, which is the biggest regional language in Indonesia, in order to, to give my research on Indonesia some more depth and to, to get at these regional traditions. Um, so I think that it is a, a really, really important field and that also a lot of um, very interesting ideas on the Quran are developed in Indonesia. Um, and at the same time, I think um, it receives very little attention partly because of the contingencies of the field because um, in Europe as much as in North America we have a specific tradition of Islamic studies that emphasizes Arabic and maybe Persian and that's pretty much it. So in Germany we also have a certain tradition of including Turkish um, but if you do anything else it becomes quite difficult to, to find a position so um, it might be bad for your career to focus on a country like Indonesia because, um, well, one of my funding applications was actually um, rejected because one of the reviewers wrote that Indonesia is marginal to Islamic studies. So, And, wow. and I think this sums up a very widespread perception. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's intense. I was going to – I was actually – as you said that, I was thinking, have you encountered any kind of situations where people – belittle your interest in Indonesia. So I think that's, that's amazing that you, you have yeah. that experience. I usually, I need to demonstrate that I, I do Arabic as well. And then it's okay. If I only did Indonesia, that would probably be a problem. Uh huh. And right. I think by the seven languages you're, you're looking at, I think, um, mm -hmm. but I guess some people have their by their bar higher and you need 15 or 20. So, We'll see. What, yeah. <laughs> so, so you mentioned Indonesia. Did you do field work in Indonesia? 
I know you visited bookstores yeah. and have interacted yeah. with academics, and so you might consider that fieldwork. I don't know. Yeah. But could could uh, you tell us? For, for this project, that's mostly what I did. I also talked to um, to people in various contexts who hold Quranic study circles. I'm, I'm not, I don't consider myself qualified to do any actual ethnographic work. And uh, at the moment, I don't have the, um, simply don't have the time to spend enough, um, I mean, a long enough period in any country to actually do the kind of observation I would need to do in order to do this properly. But, um, yeah, what, what I tried to do as much as I could was to, to visit bookstores, to see what's available, to see what people recommend to me, to ask them for their reasons, to then take notes on these talks, uh, to talk to colleagues. Um, also, when I, I wrote my chapters about Indonesia, um, and this is also a very interesting thing when you write about the contemporary period as in, I mean, what's happening today. I actually know a lot of the people I'm writing about, not all of them. But I know some of them. Um, and, yeah, this is um, – I was – I've been thinking a lot about how to deal with this. Um, I think I stated quite clearly in my book, wherever that's the case. And I also um, – I consulted a number of people I wrote about in order to get biographical information, for example, or to just check that my translation is what they wanted to – to convey, um, I didn't allow them to actually change any of my commentary or whatever, or to, to alter the meaning of their text. But um, yeah, I tried to take them into this project and to in, to involve them somehow. And um, yeah, I think this uh, this is also um, this reflects a big change in the field because I mean, if you worked in, in Germany thirty years ago as a professor, you could be you were in the position to be a German academic who wrote about Muslims, about things that happened in other regions of the world. Um, and this has changed a lot. At, today, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm um, in a field that's much more interconnected. I know, I, I write about people I know, and they might actually read what I write. They might also write back or they write, might write about me. Um, and I'm, I'm simply not that um, removed from what's actually happening within exegetical discourses anymore. I, I try to take, take an outside perspective to the extent that's possible, but, um, yeah, I'm only half outsider. Uh-huh. So at the risk of essentializing, what would you say in your, in your look at Indonesian Quranic commentaries today, what would you say are some of the salient features that you've encountered when compared to commentaries from other times and places. Okay. Well, first of all, I have to point out that in this current book, I'm not limiting myself to Quranic commentaries. I'm talking about Quranic interpretation in a broader sense. Sure. So I've also YouTube videos and stuff like that. Sure. But um, I also, I wrote the German language book where I really specifically um, looked at Quranic commentaries. And what I found there was um, that Indonesian Quranic commentaries, um, first of all, they are influenced by a certain extent, um, to a certain extent by their colonial history. Um, second, um, they have a higher tendency to, um, to refer to modernist Arab works of exegesis um, than actually Arab, Arab, Arabic Quranic commentaries do. 
um, for example, the Tafsir al-Manar or um, Jamal al-Din al-Qasimi, who wrote in Syria in the beginning of the 20th century, or um, the Tafsir al-Marari, which was written in the 1940s. It has even been translated into Indonesian language, and um, so has Muhammad Abdus' Tafsir Juz Amma, which practically nobody in the Arab world knows. Um, so this was a big difference, and this was also related to a lot of um, yeah, differences in um, in content, and sometimes also, yeah, sometimes it's, it's just a tendency, and sometimes it's actually a big difference. For example, um, when you talk about God, whether you describe God predominantly as wrathful, punishing, etc., or whether you describe God predominantly as being merciful, etc. Um, I found a lot more of the merciful tendency in Indonesian and also in Turkish Quranic commentaries. I also found a higher interest in um, philosophy and in Sufism, which was mainly rejected in mainstream works of Arabic exegesis. Uh What what about, so you mentioned Turkish as well. So if we're going to look at the sort of understudied, you know, areas of the Muslim world, at least in the Western Academy, what kinds of salient features did you encounter in the Turkish commentaries? Um, In the Turkish commentaries, um, the modernist tendencies are even more pronounced. Um, This is very strongly connected to the the fact that um, traditional institutions of Islamic higher learning were completely abolished in Turkey in the 1930s. And then at a later stage, beginning in the 19, late 1940s, um, they founded theological faculties in state universities. So um, this was a completely different kind of education. And most of the material I looked at was written by professors emerging from these faculties. Um, they um, emphasized um, a lot of, yeah, I mean, they... They marginalized the classical disciplines of Islamic learning to a certain extent, and um, instead they emphasized, um, for example, religious studies and other issues from the Western humanities. Um, and this is clearly, this is very much evident in uh, in a lot of, um, even in the style of the Quranic commentaries, um, in the way they use footnotes and in the kind of sources they use and so on. Um, in Turkey in particular, there were really um, big debates about the whole issue of um, whether God is a merciful God and whether that merciful God will also allow Jews and Christians access to paradise or not, um, which was um, a question that was very closely related to Quranic exegesis because it was directly, um, um, yeah, what is, it was a direct contest over the interpretation of Quran 262 and um, so yeah, here um, in, this was an issue I looked at in um, in one of my projects, and I found that Turkish, Turkish exegetes were most likely to have a very um, inclusivist attitude to at least towards Jews and Christians, and Arab exegetes were least likely. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to go back and revisit something you've said that I think connects both of the projects we're looking at. And you've talked about one of your interests in Quranic commentaries is the role of the nation state. Could you say, could you say a little bit about more about that? Why, why do governments care about how people interpret the Quran? 
I mean, of course, not every government cares about it to the same extent, but um, practically all governments are interested in in monitoring or even regulating um, religious discourses because they consider them potentially disruptive. Um, so one, there, are, as I said, there are various areas in which nation states take part in exegetical discourses. And um, one of them, which is very important, is um, through educational institutions um, and especially institutions of higher learning. So um, in Indonesia, for example, you have state Islamic universities uh, with specific curricula set by the state. In Turkish, you have the theological faculties. In the Arab world, you have institutions um, such as the Zaytuna in Indonesia or Al-Azhar in Cairo, which uh, are also very much controlled by the state, but um, adhere to the much more traditional curriculum. Um, and this very much influences um, the kind of exegetical works that are then produced, because um, especially with the more extensive works, they are usually written by scholars who have the time and means to do so. And um, even the less extensive works are often produced from people who were trained at these institutions. And on the other hand, there's also, of course, a kind of counter discourses. So we have um, exegetical works that are um, clearly written in order to challenge a specific state. Um, and the Quran is seen as an, um, or Quranic exegesis is seen as an ideal form of expression because the Quran has, um, has such an uncontested authoritative status that nothing else can rival. So if you can prove that your government, um, tries to falsify the Quran or contradicts the clear injunctions of the Quran or something, then you have um, successfully attacked the authority of your government. And this is what we can see in many cases in Indonesia, in the Arab world, in Turkey, and so on. Uh-huh. What, what about in a non-Muslim majority context? And so you mentioned that in your monograph, you look at German commentaries. Does, yeah. does the German government care about correct Quranic interpretation? Oh, yes, very much so. But this is, of course, a, a completely different interest. I mean, in, um, in most, um, I, I think you can't generalize. When you talk about Germany, you talk about a very specific system of relation between religion and state. And you would probably, uh, you would certainly have to modify it when talking about other countries. Um, but, um, I mean, essentially what all Western countries share is this fear of Islamic terrorism and this desire to um, promote a version of Islam that is nonviolent and possibly tolerant, modernist, etc. Um, so the whole issue of women is also, of course, a very big one. Um, and in Germany specifically, um, the German government some years ago started to fund several centers for Islamic theology at big um, state universities um, and, of course, the question what is actually being taught there and what should be taught there is a big question that has been debated a lot. So, of course, there's a lot of interest. Mm. Well, this sounds like a really cool book, and I look forward to seeing it in, in a few months when it comes out. Um, before we, we wrap things up, could you, what, what comes next after this monograph? What kinds of things are you working on currently or do you expect to be looking at in the next several years? Um, one issue that I'm, I've started to be interested in a lot is um, Quranic exegesis around the turn of the century, so um, 19th, 20th century, 
Um, so, uh, I mean, if you hear names such as Mohammed Abdu, you think superficially, okay, he's, he's a really well-known person and probably everything that can be said about him has been said already, which is absolutely not true. Um, as I found to my own surprise when writing an encyclopedia article about him, um, for example, he has, he wrote this, um, tafsir on the last part of the, on the last of the 30 parts of the Quran for educational purposes. And this has hardly been studied. This has just not evoked any, any big interest outside Indonesia, at least. So this is one thing I would like to look at in the context of this whole time, which was very much, um, characterized by, uh, new images of history, um, new, um, the relationship towards Christians, uh, towards Europe, etc. Um, these were all debates that played into the interpretation of the Quran, um, and this is also connected to the um, to the whole issue of Muslim-Christian polemics, which um, surged at this time and also influenced the way in which the Quran was read, but also um, evoked a new interest in the Bible on the part of Muslim exegetes. So th this is a very interesting period of time, um, and I would really like to do more on it. And another thing is to um, pursue what Andrew Rippon actually proposed in the edited volume on Tafsir, to come back to that one, um, to look at translations of classical works of Tafsir. Um, for my recent monograph, I looked at a very short excerpt of um, an English edition, or an English translation of an abridged version of Ibn Kathir. Mm -hmm. Ibn Kathir is today the pre-modern Quranic commentator. He's sold everywhere. There are lots of translations and so on. But nobody has looked much at these translations so far. Um, and I actually found it very intriguing um, because, I mean, first of all, these transla translations are always abridged. So the question is, what do they leave out? What do they consider important and what do they consider unimportant or maybe even wrong? Um, And then, of course, yeah, how do they structure the work? How do they translate um, the terms he uses to a possibly not that educated readership and so on? Um, and I would really like to do a comparative reading of translations of Ibn Kathir into English, Bahasa, Indonesia, Turkish, French. There are all kinds of languages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds exciting. I, I would think that would be particularly useful in a teaching context as well. At least in my case, I find my my students are always always intrigued by how things are are translated and what sort of yeah. secret or not so secret motivations could be so sounds like like an exciting uh, classroom tool as well mm -hmm. well thank you so much for speaking with us today johanna that was that was fun to yep. see the connections between your your two works and to hear about what we can expect in a few months when the monograph comes out and thank you so much for sharing your time with us yeah thank you for inviting me and you're welcome that was my conversation with dr johanna pink professor of islamic studies at the university of freiburg germany about her co-edited volume with andreas gorka tafsir and islamic intellectual history Exploring the Boundaries of a Genre, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. Thank you for listening.